Welcome to the Azure Rap Podcast, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast. This is episode 27, Ketamine for Refractory Headache. I'm your host, Raj Gupta from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Eric Schwenk from Jefferson Memorial Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Before we get to our guests today, I want to give you a couple of major announcements coming up about ASRA. First off, ASRA's fall meeting is coming up right around the corner, November 15th through the 17th in San Antonio, Texas. Go to ASRA.com, find out all the information about the meeting, register for the meeting, come join the meeting. It's going to be fantastic. There's a lot of uh, response and interest in the meeting, a lot of activity going on. I think it's going to be a great meeting in a beautiful location, especially if you're in a cold part of the country and you want to come warm up somewhere. I think Texas is going to be beautiful. You can follow that meeting on social media at hashtag AzraFall18 and track all the conversation going on about the meeting starting next week. Also, while during the meeting, Gary Schwartz and I are going to be doing Facebook Live episodes from the exhibit hall. So make sure you check out the Azra Society Twitter feed for the time and uh, days for when we're going to have those Facebook Live episodes. And then follow the Azra American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine Facebook page, and you can see us live on Facebook right from the exhibit hall. You can also watch the videos later if you want. Second big announcement Azra Spring Meeting is coming up. This is the Acute Pain and Regional Meeting. This is going to be April 11th through the 13th, 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's going to be at the Caesars Palace Hotel. Beautiful location. I think it's going to be an incredible meeting. Go to azra.com, find out all the details about the meeting. There's going to be more and more information coming out on that page any week now. As soon as the fall meeting is over, the registration for the spring meeting is going to start up very quickly. But right now, you can submit your abstracts online at the Azra.com webpage. That is open today. You can go to Azra.com, hit the meeting link for the spring meeting, and you'll see a Submit an Abstract button. That submission process ends strictly on January 17th. On January 7th, I apologize. January 7th. So don't miss the date. Start working on your abstracts. If you've already got it ready, submit it now. We've already had a rolling number of abstracts. This is the highest number of abstracts we've had come in for a meeting like this ever. So get yours in right now. Our two guests today are going to be helping us talk about the use of ketamine for refractory headache. Our first guest is Lynn Cohan. She's the Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine. She's the Director of Pain Fellowship at the University of Virginia, and she's the chair of the Headache Special Interest Group at ASRA. And our second guest is Clinton Loriston. He's a clinical instructor in neurology and headache specialist, director of the inpatient headache unit at Thomas Jefferson University and the Jefferson Headache Center. We want to thank both of our guests for joining us, and we'll get to our conversation about ketamine and refractory headache. Okay, well, we want to start by talking about the topic today on headache. And to start the conversation on the headache, let's talk about the special interest group, the Headache SIG at ASRA. Lynn, do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, ASRA Headache SIG, what it's about, and what's the mission for that special interest group? Of course. Um, I think the Headache uh, SIG within ASRA is an important SIG because headaches and facial pain really impact a lot of patients with chronic pain. And I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of chronic pain doctors who are kind of wary of treating headaches and facial pain. 
whether it be because they don't have training or they're just kind of not interested um, in treating that patient population. But um, one of the goals of the SIG is to really um, to get uh, people more involved in, in treating these types of disorders because you really can make a significant impact in patients' lives. And so uh, we have a number of resources on our SIG, uh, including articles um, and webcasts um, to try to create resources uh, for people to learn more about this topic. And, um, you know, if if anybody wants to find more about the SIG, they can go to azro.com. If you just type in headache, S-I-G, in the search bar, you'll get to the uh, headache SIG, and you can join the SIG, uh, see what they're up to, and participate. Uh, So I think... That's a great group of people that uh, a lot of people, a lot of different clinicians in the country can get advantage uh, from visiting. So let's talk about today's topic, which is ketamine for refractory headache pain. Eric, you want to introduce the topic since you're the lead author on this article? Sure. Yeah, this is a a paper that Ross is referring to that was uh, just published in Regional Anesthesia Pain Medicine. And the title, as you said, is Ketamine for Refractory Headache, a Retrospective Analysis. Uh, we do ketamine for for uh, patients with uh, refractory headache at Jefferson. We basically do a five-day course of inpatient therapy, continuous ketamine for these patients that have failed many other treatments. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let uh, uh, Dr. Larson speak a little bit more about uh, the specifics of how these patients are determined. But basically, this was a study, a cohort study of 61 patients who were admitted over uh, a couple-year period at our hospital. And... We kind of grouped them into uh, patients who responded to ketamine and patients who did not respond to ketamine. We define responder as a drop in pain intensity on a zero to 10 scale of two points. So a patient who had uh, decreased from eight to six would be considered a responder, for example. And over three quarters of the patients uh, were responders using that definition. And these patients uh, these patients ended up, almost all of them had a, had a five-day uh, treatment course. We we start ketamine pretty low. We titrate it up. We watch closely for side effects. We have treatments available. We have a very robust acute pain team with nurses covering around the clock as, as well as uh, the, the headache team is working closely with us. The, the, they're really, the obviously, they're, they're patients of the neurology service that have been referred through the, the headache center that we have, but we're able to offer a really unique a great therapy that we're pretty excited about. And we've been doing this for uh, some time now. And from at least this this study, it looks like a lot of patients were able to get a benefit, in some cases, pretty substantial benefit of a drop of six or seven in their in their pain intensity. And I think it's a, it's a subject that probably deserves some more study in a prospective manner. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a great thing that we're able to do that's, I think, pretty unique around the country. Clinton, you want to talk a little bit about your program and how uh, patients get into it and why you guys chose ketamine as part of your treatment modality? Sure, sure. So um, the Jefferson Headache Center is a tertiary care referral center. You know, uh, I think defining your population is important here. So all these in, in the study we recently published, um, all the patients met uh, criteria for chronic migraine uh, based on ICHD criteria. And uh, the refractory part uh, in the title of the paper is 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 not a cr- consensus uh, agreed upon uh, diagnostic criteria. So, so people have that question: what what you know what defines a f- refractory headache patient? So, there have been special interest groups dedicated to this. Um, the American Headache Society had a special interest group in two thousand eight 
um, to determine the criteria that should be used uh, for refractory headache and also uh, somewhat more recently the European Headache Federation uh, dedicated some efforts to this but still there's no agreed upon criteria but uh, in general when when it's been referred to uh, it's included patients that have failed uh, some number of preventive medications uh, whether it's two to four or more preventive medications and a number of uh, abortive uh, you know migraine specific medications in the case of uh, refractory migraine so I, I can say it's almost all of the patients that wind up coming to Jefferson as a new patient, um, or at least the uh, vast majority are, are refractory chronic migraine patients. Uh, we also see other headache disorders, but the majority is chronic migraine. Uh, and then of the patients we select to admit uh, for acute hospitalization, uh, basically basically 100% of these patients would meet any any version of the refractory migraine or refractory headache diagno- diagnosis that's been um suggested in, in literature. So, and I think it's an important distinction um, because these patients have often, not only have they failed four medications, but they've often failed, you know, 10 or 20 preventive medications. And, uh, you know, someone can have chronic migraine and have more than 15 headache days uh, per month, but they're functioning, they're able to work. Whereas uh, a majority of these patients, you know, not only are they having headache more than 15 days, but uh, almost all these patients are having some level of continuous pain that never, never truly goes away. Uh, simply, it fluctuates between, you know, a rating scale of of, of one to ten uh, every day. So these are these are very disabled and very debilitated patients. Um, so I think it's a very in, important uh, group of patients to study. And Lynn, um, this is obviously a, a very intensive therapy, uh, five days inpatient treatment with IV infusions and pretty uh, uh, potent medication therapy. Um, in the community, how many places are doing work like this, and how does this compare to alternative therapies uh, to ketamine infusion when somebody is refractory? Right. I mean, I, I mean, as I mentioned, I think this is pretty unique. Um, we uh, use ketamine infusions similarly, but not for chronic uh, refractory headaches at this point in time, but for um, other conditions such as CRPS. But just inpatient ketamine in and of itself, infusions are pretty unique. Most places around the country who are doing ketamine or tend to be doing these as outpatient therapies rather than inpatient um, therapies. And Eric, are you guys um, piggybacking the inpatient uh, five-day course with outpatient intermittent therapy to maintain headache control, or is this sort of a one-and-done treatment to try to see if it'll reduce um, yeah, their I chronic mean, pain? It's it's a really good question, and the answer, the short answer is no. We're not doing that. We're admitting patients for five days, uh, but and they're done. But that being said. We do have uh, we do have many repeat patients, and I, I was actually talking to uh, Clinton the other day. We were trying to get a guesstimate of how many patients we take care of that are that are repeat patients, and it's 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 probably less than it, it seems to be less than half of them. We don't have uh, the exact numbers at this point, but there are a sizable uh, portion of our population who has been treated specifically at Jefferson with ketamine before, and we generally will limit it to you know, maybe once every quarter or so, every three to four months, 
um, because there, there is a pretty substantial demand and, and basically a huge waiting list for patients to get this treatment. And, and um, uh, Clinton can speak a little bit more to that because he's seeing these patients in the office and kind of screening them and, and, and doing all that. But I mean, I, for my understanding is that there's a, a very significant need. There's a significant desire. And um, both Clinton and I have been contacted by people from all across the country who have either read about us or heard that we provide the service and are, are very interested in this. Uh, Clinton, I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit, but. Well, and actually, can I ask one question first? Sure. So, in terms of the, and for either of you, um, might be able to answer. In terms of when people are coming back for the repeat, kind of for the boosters, are they also being admitted for the five full days? Or have you found that they need kind of more of a just a shorter booster? like two to three days. Yes, I can, I can take that. So, um, yeah, it, it, it looks like, you know, at least for some sustained response that, uh, patients need a more prolonged, uh, infusion of ketamine. And, and, and some of the thought behind that is that you need to accumulate uh, a certain degree of metabolites, um, in order to achieve this lasting effect. Uh, it, it's a good question, you know, a lot of people want to look for that magic bullet one-time treatment that's going to modulate the whole course of the pain disorder. But, but really, I think where this, where this, these acute uh, ketamine infusion treatments fit into the ongoing, long-term uh, picture of, of headache treatment uh, is variable. I, I do think you know we saw a significant uh, number of patients in our recently published study that reported a sustained response in a. a this was a one in three months um, post-infusion. Um, I think there's a, a number of things to say about it. Um, anecdotally, I think that has been one thing we, we've struggled with, uh, you know, over the years with, with ketamine infusion is the, is the lack of, of sustained response. I mean, so I think in the study, I mean, if you look at the baseline uh, pain ratings, which I think averaged about eight out of 10, and then uh, by end of infusion was was somewhere around three out of ten um, versus so so obviously that that kind of blows away the the two out of ten uh, criteria that we use for significant improvement um, but then when you look at follow up I, I'm not so sure the numbers are are quite what they were at the end of the um, hospitalization so you know um, two added so they could they could if they were averaging eight right at, at one in three month follow up, maybe if they're averaging six out of ten, I mean that's still a two out of ten, but it's not clearly as uh, significant as the three out of ten. So I think maybe that's where that my anecdotal perspective um, contrasts with with just the the kind of uh, overall numbers that we showed such a significant um, sustained response. I think it was forty percent of patients in the study, which was uh, even slightly a bit higher than a previous study we. We had at Jefferson uh, retrospectively with ketamine infusions for refractory headache, where they reported 27% sustained response. Um, another another thing that I think is a, it was a major uh, factor in this, and and pretty striking to me when I when I looked at the data was the degree of uh, or the number of patients in this particular review that were using daily opioids. So um, I think ketamine has been particularly helpful in. Uh, allowing patients to decrease the dose of opioids and, um, you know, stop using opioids. So I think if all you do is achieve, um, you know, cessation of opioid use, you can have some sustained, obviously sustained benefit on, um, 
migraine, chronic migraine um, at, you know, several months post follow-up. So I think it's something we should look at more, more specifically and kind of break down. Um, It'd be interesting too, you know, because it talks about the opioids, but also, you know, kind of going along that same lines of medication overuse headache, just with other, you know, even non-narcotic analgesics, you know, simple analgesics or, or people who are overusing their board of medications too, and what kind of impact could have for them to decrease those medications to reduce their headaches. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, we, we know if you, if you address medication overuse itself. Right. Um, despite what other medications you're giving, that that's going to have some, you know, positive lasting impact. So uh, I think it's an important thing to tease out. Yeah, I, I'll jump in real quick. I, I just wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to say that basically, I, I think it would be very interesting to see, you know, we don't, we don't know if repeated infusions, inpatient infusions like we're doing versus outpatient kind of brief infusions for a few hours, a couple in a row, or however many are being done. We don't know necessarily which is better if either is better. Uh, certainly, um, I think that's, that would be interesting to know. Then there's the, the other issue of kind of other forms of ketamine. There's intranasal ketamine, which is so sometimes being used by patients on an outpatient basis, and it obviously has a shorter duration. But is that something, is there a role for that in between ketamine infusions? And I think these are pretty good questions that um, some of the answers are just not known yet. And Eric, would, would uh, if, if this is sort of a uh, loading effect, would some other oral NMDA antagonist uh, be something that could help sustain their uh, their uh, analgesia benefits uh, for a longer duration of time? Has that ever been tried? I'm sure Clinton and Lynn can probably expand more. I, I've seen maybe, I, I know of one paper offhand where, and there probably are more, where memantine, for example, has been used in this role and there was some benefit for it. So it does uh, perhaps imply that the NMDA receptor is at least partially responsible for it, but uh, these guys who were treating headache on a regular basis probably have a better uh, sense of that. Yeah, I mean, it, from my perspective, I mean, uh, th- you know, that that study, you know, wasn't uh, following a ketamine infusion or, or for refractory headache for that matter. Certainly, I think there is, is some evidence that it can be useful for, as a preventive. I, I can say anecdotally, we have tried, you know, NMD uh, oral NMDA receptor uh, antagonists, so memantine, uh, amantadine. We've used you know, dextromethorphan, uh, and anecdotally, we haven't seen great uh, response to that as a preventive. Um, on the other hand, what 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 I have used and what we have used um, in between hospitalizations is is as Eric mentioned, the use of intranasal ketamine um, as an as needed uh, treatment. Uh, and, and that I have found is, is effective. Now we haven't looked at, you know, patients using, you know, intermittent intranasal nasal ketamine, uh, in terms of, uh, outcomes in, of her sustained response versus those who did not. I think that would be an interesting thing to look at. Uh, and then, and then lastly, uh, more recently we've, we've, we have, um, in a, a number of select patients, um, began trying the use of, of oral uh, ketamine, oral daily ketamine as, as a preventive uh, in these patients where ketamine uh, intravenously seems to be one of the only uh, therapies that have been effective. Um, and, and the oral ketamine uh, definitely has its limitations, uh, mm-hmm. uh, issues with absorption and, and otherwise, then you may have some experience otherwise with uh, other chronic non-headache syndromes. 
And yeah, no, I agree with exactly everything you just said. I think in terms of the other NMA and MDA antagonists, we've kind of anecdotally had the same experience that you just um, relayed. Um, in terms of the nasal ketamine, we've had some issues just in terms of being able to find someone who will compound it um, you know, into kind of that meter-dosed inhaler for patients. Um, and the oral ketamine, just as you said, because of the oral you know, bioavailability, um, have not seen robust response. Um, but it's hard to know, I mean, because the patients we have used that on for other kind of disorders have been patients who've been refractory, you know, to everything and, you know, even really didn't have as robust of a response to the IV ketamine as some of our other patients have had. So it's, it's hard to know. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, if you look at, you know, studies and, and treatments of uh, novel treatments in general, I mean, if you have a 50% 50 responder rate for anything in particular, that that's pretty great, right? Uh, right? And if you look at that in a patient that's failed, you know, 20, 30 different medicines, if you if there's a treatment that produces, you know, a 50% responder rate in, in, you know, five or 10% of those patients, that's impressive, you know, where these are these are patients who have failed that number of medicines and and we're having upwards of you know 50% response uh, for these acute treatments so i really think it's it's striking when you when you consider the population that we're using this with yes i agree i agree could this be seen could this uh, process of these iv infusions been be considered sort of a selection process. I mean, you seem to have a almost a black and white comparison group of immediate responders and non-responders, and would that help uh, delineate future care uh, medication regimens based on who you might think is an NMDA uh, receptor antagonist responder and non-responder? Well, and the other the other thing, going uh, sort of piggybacking off what Clinton said earlier. Is is the response perhaps not solely mediated by NMDA receptors? That's kind of a theory we've had for a while because, like in in the in depression and actually in at least one study in CRPS um, that er, Dr. Irving Weiner has done, there there was um, good evidence that that uh, the metabolites that uh, ketamine is broken down into actually may be responsible for some of the effects, particularly in depression. Now certainly. Uh, mm-hmm. migraine is not depression, but it does make you wonder would be patients seem to have minimal benefit from the non-continuous intravenous uh, formulations of ketamine. And, and is, is part of that reason because uh, metabolites are not accumulating. And, you know, a couple of days, like for example, it was about four and a half days into the admission when patients had their best improvement uh, in our study. Now, some of that could certainly be accumulation of ketamine itself, but also the accumulation of its various metabolites certainly picks up several days into it. And is that something that's playing a role? I think that's something that definitely is a very interesting area of study to me, and we just don't have an answer. And I agree. I mean, you know, for our other chronic pain disorders that we were using the ketamine infusions for, because we were doing the same thing, five to seven days of ketamine infusions. And I agree exactly with what you said. I mean, it really took them, a lot of the patients, several days, kind of four to five days before we really saw more market improvement. You have to think there's something, yeah, there's something to that. I was struck, though, one question I had about this paper is, um, if you look at table two, where they talk about, where you guys talk about additional medications, I, I don't know if there was any significant differences, but there seemed to be a tendency to use more additional medications in the responder group. Is that 
do you think that there's a, a possible confounding effect with some of these other medications with instead of the ketamine effect? Certainly. I mean, that that's it's, it's a retrospective study and the, the numbers really were not sufficient for uh, for analysis of to compare the two groups here. But certainly uh, there, there's there's a confounders in a retrospective study like this you can't control for. And, um, you know, like like Clinton said, there's there was a lot of opioid use in this group, probably more than people would have expected medication overuse and a lot of other medications that are listed in that table were used, you know, DHE, NSAIDs, neuroleptics. So certainly the effect um, cannot be solely attributed to ketamine, at least definitively without a prospective study. So absolutely. I mean, part of, part of the ability to, uh, to tease that out comes from, um, you know, part of what you're asking, the, the, the criteria for emission for, for these ketamine infusions comes from uh, partially a logistics standpoint. So most of these patients that have gotten ketamine um, have have failed, you know, traditional treatment for for you know status migranosis with with IV DHE, IV neuroleptics, IV NSAIDs, uh, these these adjunct medicines that they that they had in this study. So so that's part of why you know at least in an uncontrolled fashion you you can you can kind of uh, feel that the ketamine has more of a weight in the effect because they've basically all these patients have been exposed to those adjunct medications before and had uh, insufficient relief. Um, and, and then, yeah, I agree with, with, with what Eric said about other mechanisms uh, of action apart from uh, NMDA, uh, glutamine-associated modulation. We know, we know ketamine has some um, modulatory effect, uh, effects opioid receptors, um, it, the GABA uh, transmission. Um, you know, there's an effect uh, on cortical spreading depression. There, there was a study um, published for the use of intranasal ketamine for uh, prolonged aura in migraine patients uh, with, with positive results on decreasing uh, severity of aura, uh, which we think is is related to cortical spreading depression. So, so I, I think I think there's definitely more to it uh, than the NMDA receptor. I agree. I was going to raise a real quick point. Uh, Clinton, from your experience, what roughly what percentage of patients, maybe not even percentage, but it, are a lot of patients affected by depression who come in with refractory migraine, or is it the minority? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a question that comes up a lot, uh, you know, chicken, egg, this sort of thing. I think, you know, anyone that's in daily pain, certainly continuous pain, uh, it's reasonable to to imagine at some point they're going to develop psychological comorbidity, and I, I would say mo- most, if not all, of these patients will, you know, admit to some degree of of, of anxiety and depression. But uh, it, it's typically not the primary, uh, you know, disabling um, thing that's going on. Uh, I think th- these are patients that will tell you, you know, prior to you know, the chronification of dis- their disorder, they were not someone that struggled much with any anxiety or depression. This is something that has uh, been exacerbated by the, by the pain disorder. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a good question. Um, you know, but, but I think, I think you can really, uh, attribute the effect to, to the, to the ketamine's effect on, on, you know, mood disorders. I mean, a lot of these patients, have been treated with antidepressants and anxiolytic medicines 
know, psychotherapy that, that that has definitely been addressed uh so so i think you can kind of tease out that that's not all you know related to some you know underlying mood disorder so lynn i want to ask uh, one final question as we wrap up um, this is obviously there, there shows promise in this kind of treatment modality. And so people who listen to this are going to wonder, is this something that should be introduced at our institution? Is this too early? Um, and then especially when you compare, cause it's obviously a very labor intensive and cost intensive process to go through. But when you compare it with some of the surgical treatments for refractory, uh, headache, is this a cost effective way of treating patients that have refractory headache, or is this still too cutting edge for people to start thinking about instituting in their insti- in their own hospitals? Well, I mean, no, I, I think um, it is definitely something that people can institute in their own hospitals. Um, why costly? And while there are definitely sometimes insurance barriers for these patients to get ketamine, I mean, it's definitely something that is really doable. I mean, we, I think, just as in your study, have been doing ketamine infusions on the regular floor. So this does not necessarily, you know, require an ICU stay for monitoring and all that. And patients at the doses um, that are being used really do pretty well. And so, you know, when you think about some of the surgical or interventional treatments, um, you know, patients have to keep coming back for those because they don't have longevity at times, and those can add up too. And there are risk factors um, with interventional treatments as well. And so I think ketamine is a safe option. I think it's something that is very doable for um, other institutions to, to try. And so that leads me into a perfect plug for the headache SIG, and we make our full circle back, which is that if people want to learn more about how to do this kind of stuff, then go to the azure.com and find out the headache special interest group, and you can learn more about this. Well, I want to thank all of you guys, Eric. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. And then Lynn and Clinton, thank you so much for joining us. I think this is a really interesting topic, completely foreign to my practice, but I think that um, I'm learning a lot about the, the medications that we use and some of the other utilization for this. I want to thank both of you guys for joining us as guests on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And uh, as always, go to azra.com to find out all the details about upcoming events, uh, future podcasts, past podcasts. You can listen to all our old episodes if you find our podcast link at azra.com. And uh, thank you guys for coming, and we'll wrap it up with that. Don't forget iTunes. And iTunes, subscribe. Yeah, absolutely. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you.